you have a Bible, open it up to Psalms 116. I'm going to start there, just right off the bat today. Right from the start, Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he has heard my appeal for mercy, because he has turned his ear to me. I will call out to him as long as I live. The ropes of death were wrapped around me, and the torments of Sheol, or the grave, overcame me. I encountered trouble and sorrow, and I called to the name of the Lord, Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is compassionate, verse 6. The Lord guards the inexperienced. I was helpless and he saved me. Return your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, Lord, rescued me from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I said that I am severely oppressed, and in my alarm when I said, everyone is a liar. How can I repay the Lord for all the good he has done for me? I will take the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. The death of all his faithful ones is valuable to the Lord's sight. Lord, I am indeed your servant. I am your servant, the son of your female servant. You have loosened my bonds. I will offer you a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people in the courts of the Lord's house within you, Jerusalem. Hallelujah. Once again, I find myself starting a sermon off with, today we're going to do things a little differently. Wondering at what point I've done that enough times that you're saying, Philip, everything you do is a little different. And... Thank you for putting up with that, I guess. First off, it's probably best to explain why. Um, One of my favorite books and one of the most influential books in my ministry is a book called The Emotionally Healthy Church. It's by an author named Peter Scazzaro. And part of his philosophy of church, and in particular church leadership, uh, is the concept of embracing grieving and loss and leading out of vulnerability. For the past few decades, it seems like the church, and maybe for the history of the church, I'm not sure, it seems like the church has painted the men who stand behind pulpits as superheroes, uh, exempt from temptations and, and the pains of life. And we all know that's not true. I mean, we know that to be untrue. But somehow the assumption still carries We often like to think that the one standing behind the pulpit declaring, thus saith the Lord, does so with the confident assurance of a never shaken faith. And perhaps for the last decade of my ministry, that's kind of the character I've attempted to embrace. But attempts to do that today felt disingenuous and insincere. So today I wanted to attempt to preach out of my own vulnerability So the reason I'm not standing there, there's nothing sacred about that, but the reason I'm not doing that is maybe this isn't so much a proclamation of the word or a preaching of the word as it is just a contemplation on God's word and my life and who I am as your pastor. 
These thoughts have consumed most of my time over the last two weeks. So I thought it best to do that with my church family. For those of you that may be new or or maybe you're just not fully aware, uh, it's probably best to just give an abbreviated version of the story that's led Haley and I to this point. For the last six years of our lives, uh, we have struggled to have a baby. Um, We have spent hours in tears and prayer asking God to intervene. We've visited doctors and we've explored nearly every option we could think of. And about a year ago, a little bit less than a year ago, we settled on the idea of embryo adoption. Embryo adoption is where another couple who has undergone in vitro fertilization donates their leftover embryos. If that's difficult to understand or difficult to explain to your children, the best way I've heard it uh, in a way that can be explained is think of them as pre-born baby seeds. So another family had pre-born baby seeds that they've given us to be planted in Haley's tummy so that they can grow into people, into babies and into people like us. After undergoing our first transfer of two embryos on June 1st, we received a positive pregnancy test about a week later. We were overjoyed. We shared that with you from the pulpit. You were enjoyed with us. But on Tuesday the 14th, we got news from our doctor that everything had changed. We found ourselves plummeting into chaos and darkness. We were bombarded with eternal questions and emotions, and our minds raced and our hearts ached. How do you put devastation into words? How do you describe the sheer nuclear bomb of transitioning from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows? How do you transition from saying goodnight to what you thought was three people back to one? How do you navigate the dreams and aspirations of a life as a family now broken? How do you miss someone you never knew? How do you intercept the intrusive thoughts of, if I could have just done things differently, or maybe if I'd have tried, things would have been different? How do you cope with the obliteration of what you thought was faithful assurance? How do you grab a rope you thought was secure, only to find it's a rope made of sand? I ask those questions not in an attempt to answer them, but with the knowledge that almost everyone in here has had situations where you have asked similar questions. You see, as much as our culture paints grief and suffering as emotions to be nullified and avoided at all costs, as much as we want to see sorrow as this unique emotion rarely to be experienced, as much as we desire the absence of hurt, reality shows up over and over again and demolishes our expectations, leaving us to pick up the pieces, usually in a state of confusion and brokenness, and no one is exempt. Money cannot exempt you. Status cannot exempt you. Success cannot exempt you. Faith cannot exempt you. Grief has no preference nor shows favor. So how do we process and walk through grief and sorrow in a way that is both helpful and biblical? That's the question I'm going to see if I can talk through today. I think it's best to begin by just naming grief. What is it? Where does it come from? What causes it? And then taking that perspective to the Bible and holding it up to the history of God's interaction with man and finally taking it all to the feet of our Savior and and leaning on the reality of the gospel. My point in all of this is not to give you some anecdote or pithy quote that you can put on your refrigerator 
nor is it just to pass on an encouraging Bible verse or two. My point is to direct both myself and my family and this church to true hope. Hope that far outweighs mere optimism. Hope that transcends into the darkest of depths, that sheds lights onto the valley of death itself. So let's define grief. Grief is the emotion that stems from reality disagreeing with expectations. I'll say that again. Grief is the emotion that stems from reality disagreeing with expectations. This happens in many ways and is far more universal and common than we often think. Uh, Sometimes it happens in small ways. The example that I thought of this morning in Sunday school is uh, anytime you see a young college couple that are about to get married and they're just, you know, bright-eyed and, and, you know, you know the college couple that they're like, all we need is a shack and a field of flowers that we can skip through and hold hands and that's what we need. And then give them about six months and watch reality set in. And I'm not saying it's bad, I'm just saying it's different. And all of a sudden it becomes, why is your voice so annoying at six in the morning? Right? The expectations don't meet reality. And it will create in that process a type of mourning or griefing in a way. It may not be bad, but it's still universal. It can happen in small ways. Getting married, graduating from college or high school and losing that financial security that you held to, watching your youth fade away, moving and finding that the once unshakable friendships you had are now waning, seeing your children grow up and become less dependent on you, watching leadership transitions within the church, watching culture changes within society, ending a small group, losing a pet. Then sometimes they can happen in far more extreme and devastating ways. The loss of a child or the premature death of a spouse Abuse, divorce, cancer, the shattering of a lifelong dream, the betrayal of a friend, finding that someone you thought you trusted as a leader ended up being corrupt. In his book, The Emotionally Healthy Church, Peter Scazzaro puts it this way, the most important issue is not calculating where a particular loss is on the continuum of public to private or sudden to gradual. Loss is loss. It is the norm of life, not the exception. And at the same time, every grief, every sorrow is an opportunity to grow and develop. Scripture never once paints grief, no matter how big or small it may be, as a bump in the road to just get over as quickly as possible. It never tells us that we should feel guilty in the midst of our grief for, quote, just not moving on fast enough. Rather, Scripture gives us a much more human perspective cast through the lens of a real and gracious and understanding and working God. I think we find this model most clearly demonstrated through David's writings. David spoke and sang all the time of the different sorrows that he encountered in life, even to the point that when the king that had spent years trying to kill him dies, David writes a song of grief and commands all of Israel to sing it with him in 2 Samuel 1, thinking back, saying, the splendor of Israel lies slain on your heights. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. King David understood the value of grieving even when grief seemed unnecessary. 
He knew that we were deepened by taking the time to grieve our losses before moving on. He knows how important it is for people to stay connected to reality rather than running from pain. We've not even touched the writings in the Psalms because, did you know if we count up the Psalms, uh, 150 of them in total, the Psalms of lament or the Psalms of sorrow or the Psalms of suffering far outweigh any other kind of psalm. More than half of our 150 psalms are classified as laments, and most of those were written by David, wrestling with the truth of God's loyal, faithful love against the backdrop of a devastating reality. These psalms notice when circumstances, circumstances seem to say that God is not good. They're okay taking notice with an apparent absence of God. The Psalms are comfortable saying things like, tears have been my food day and night, Psalm 42.3. They're comfortable saying, has God unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Psalm 77.8, or like we read in 116.3, the ropes of death were wrapped around me. The torments of the grave overcame me. I encountered trouble and sorrow. The Psalms are comfortable processing a reality when the circumstances are inexplicably difficult. So while our culture is quick to distract pain with fleeting pleasure, to self-medicate through work or television or drugs or alcohol or shopping or food or busyness, or even serving the church, the Bible embraces grieving and loss as a key part of what it means to be human. Again, a quote from the Emotionally Healthy Church, to reject God's seasons of grief and sadness as they come to us is to live only half of our lives. What makes this particularly tragic is that Jesus came to set us free to engage life fully, not escape its reality. Because that's the reality. Grief shows up and often sticks around for a season meaning that it takes time, which usually involves this in-between time, so to speak, the time between the initial fallout and, and a godly resolution. And sometimes that length of time is just a few days, and other times it just seems to continually linger on this side of heaven. And regardless, this in-between time is typically marked by confusion and bewilderment and a feeling that everything has been shattered. Biblically speaking, this is the time between the cross and the resurrection. This is the time between the ascension and Pentecost. This is the time between Peter's denial of Jesus in the courtyard and Jesus' forgiveness of him on the shore. The time between John's exile to Patmos and John's return to Ephesus. And we track this pattern all through scripture from the Psalms to the history of Israel to the narratives of the Gospels. Theologian Walter Brueggemann explains that this can be divided into what he calls three categories. He calls them orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. Orientation is where we enjoy God and we enjoy his creation and blessings. We delight in his goodness. We find a good, rich sense of self-worth and well-being in the joy of our maker. And then disorientation is when the bottom falls out of that marking hurt and suffering, leaving us to wonder what's happening and 
what's going on. This is where we usually find doubt and resentment, isolation, despair. And then there's reorientation. The time when God breaks back in and does something new, when he turns mourning to dancing, ashes to beauty, tears to laughter. And when you read scripture, you learn that these movements are not a one and done event, but this process that's nuanced and complex. It's deep and wide. It's layered over top of one another. And while scripture gives no formula for how long this in-between period lasts, it does prove it as a reality. So what do we do when we find ourselves in the disorienting in-between? To answer that question, I would ask this question. What does a person do when they're stranded in the desert and they see a light on the horizon? You point yourself in the direction of the light and you take a step forward, however slow that step may be. What do we do when we find ourselves in the disorienting in between? We point ourselves to the direction of the cross and we take a step forward, however slow that step may be, trusting that the God who gave himself for us can pick us up and carry us to him. Which brings us to the primary person through which we understand grieving and sorrow. Jesus of Nazareth. In prophesying about Jesus, Isaiah called him a man of sorrow or a man of suffering in Isaiah 53. We find this accurate when we read through the Gospels because story after story are Jesus dealing with his own sufferings and sorrows of people around him. And so we see Jesus standing among Lazarus' mourning family after Lazarus had died. And Jesus doesn't just smile and say, chin up, everyone, it's going to be okay. Get a grip on yourselves and let me handle this. But instead, he weeps with them. Hebrews 5.8 tells us that Jesus, quote, learned obedience through what he had suffered. I think another way that we could say that is Jesus grew through grieving and loss. And so do we. The evidence of God's eternal power over suffering is most clearly seen in the crucifixion and resurrection as God turns the most horrid evil, the murder of God himself wrapped in flesh, to good. The forgiveness of sins and freedom from death. It is this new, proven reality that leads Jesus to say, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world, John 16, 33. It's this new reality that led Peter to say, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you, 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. It's this reality that led Paul to say, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed, Romans 8, 18. And if we point ourselves to this reality, even the most disorienting circumstance finds hope. Not optimism, not a holy wishing for the best and crossing our fingers, but hope. 
Hope that surpasses all understanding. Hope that if God can bring good from the death of his own son Jesus, he can bring good from the death of our expectations. Hope that if he is able to work all things to the good of those who love him, he is able to work the good things from us when we love him. This is not to negate the grief nor is this a life hack to quickly bypass hurt and pain and just move on with life. This is the means by which we can trust God to use grief and sorrow to bring new birth, to do what only God can do, making new from the devastation of old. See, it's from grieving that we experience a greater capacity to wait on God and surrender to his will, trusting that we do not need to control life, we do not need to have our way in life, but we need to live fully under his sufficient grace. It's from grieving that we become more kind and compassionate, learning to empathize with those around us, truly caring for them the way God cares for them. It's through grief that we find the freedom from a need to impress others, learning to turn to God rather than the approval of man. It's through grief we learn to live more comfortably in the mystery of life, learning the value of the words, I don't know, but God does and I trust him. It's through grief we sense the reality of heaven in a new way, understanding more fully that we are only aliens in this broken world. And that God has a day prepared where sin and death and hurt and pain will be no more. This is what the psalmists longed for in their laments. This is what the disciples stood on in their suffering. This is what Haley and I have leaned on in the past two weeks because this is the reality that God has declared at the resurrection of Jesus. So let me backtrack to the definition of grief. I gave towards the beginning. Grief is the emotion that stems from reality disagreeing with expectations. We had an expectation. Not only Haley and I, but many of you with us. Expectations that nine months from now we would be loading up two car seats. We would be sleep-deprived zombies attempting to navigate the chaos of early parenthood, ready to drop them off in the nursery for someone else to deal with for an hour or two. Expectations that we would celebrate life with our families and celebrate life with you. Those expectations are gone as a new and different reality has set in. And almost every one of you knows the same feeling. Because you too have, have, have had expectations. Expectations of getting that job. Expectations of going to that school. Expectations of having that relationship. Expectations of achieving that goal. Expectations of spending life with that person. Expectations that are now gone as a new, different reality sets in. And as you grieve that new reality, whatever yours may be, I remind you and I remind myself that God has cast an untouchable reality at the resurrection of the Son. And that we can expect there to be a day when sin will be no more, where death will have no sting, that is forever an unchanging reality. 
And it's that expectation, it's that reality where we find a place to plant our faith and where our faith grows and roots and grows into hope. God's desire is that every passing grief, every demolished expectation would push us closer to the hope that he has drawn us closer to him. So as far as invitation goes... I'd be amiss if I didn't invite you to this reality with me. Many of you already live there. I know because you have pointed Haley and I to the cross through encouragement and prayer and cards and hugs and, and even just presence. You've shared the same hope with me that I get to share with you. And all I can say to that is thank you. I couldn't list off enough to just credibly say thank you to everyone in here, but just off the top of my, he of my head, um, to our church staff, to Pastor David, who has continually held down fort here and done things in office when I've been away with Haley through the medical process that I'll be picking up and going over again in the next few months. Thank you to Miss Marion and Liz for holding down the office. We have an incredible church staff. I could not say thank you enough. And thank you to so many of you that have sent texts and have loved me and Haley through all of this. I've learned all the more the incredible value of church through this. I don't mean to diminish the value of worship and music or the value of sermons or the value of Bible study. All of those things are vital, but over the last few weeks, I have found value and solace and support and comfort and love through this togetherness that we call church. Far, far surpassing a Sunday service into the nooks and corners of everyday life. I am grateful to call First Baptist my family and to call Portalis my home. I'm grateful to share the living hope of Christ with you and to have you share it with me. So for those of you that have participated in that with me, thank you. And for those of you that have not, if you are not a part of a church in this capacity, maybe you have another church, that's great. But if you do not have a place where you can, in the words of Galatians 6, carry other people's burdens and have your burdens carried, you can find that here. I invite you to find that here. But belonging to a church in this capacity demands far more than a Sunday attendance. It demands vulnerability. It demands a few steps outside of your comfort zone. It means talking to someone who you may not know all that well and relying solely on the common ground of the cross. But if you can do that, in my experience, you will be hard-pressed to find a more caring and loving church family than we have right here at First Baptist if you need that, I would just invite you to talk with someone in this room. Meet them, pray with them, let them pray for you, rest together in the hope of the cross. And then maybe for some of you, you, you don't share that hope. You've found yourself aimlessly wandering through grief. Maybe you've shared in the hope in the past, but you've become distracted because of the disorienting grief that you have. You've been stuck in this stage of disorientation, and I would just invite you to come to the foot of the cross where all grief finds purpose. I use that word intentionally. Note I did not say all grief finds an end. 
The cross does not promise an end to the grief. It promises a purpose through the grief. It will find purpose, and even more importantly, where you can find grace, where you can find mercy, and you can find forgiveness for the griefs that you have caused. Because if we were honest, not only do we experience grief, but we are often the cause of grief in other people's life. And it's at the cross we find forgiveness for all of that. We find rescue, and Jesus is inviting you to that rescue. So as I close, and instead of just giving a closing prayer, what I want to do is, is just reread through Psalm 116 again. But this time I'm going to change the wordage a little bit and do it as a prayer to God. And when I finish that prayer, we're going to just have a time of invitation. If, if maybe you're dealing with something in this new reality that you're struggling with and you just want to sit down in your pew and pray, you can do that. If you want to come forward and pray, you, you can do that. But this is a chance to just reflect on what happens when reality dashes my expectations and how do I give my trust to the one who controls reality. Will you bow your heads with me? I love you, Lord. You have heard my appeal for mercy. Because you have turned your ear to me, I will call out to you as long as I live. The ropes of death were wrapped around me. The torments of the grave overcame me. I encountered trouble and sorrow. And so I called on your name, Lord. Lord, save me. You are gracious and righteous. God, you are compassionate. You guard the inexperience. When I was helpless, you saved me. So return your rest to my soul. For you have been good to me. For you, Lord, you have rescued me from death. You have rescued my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before you in the land of the living. I believe that even when I said I am severely oppressed, in my alarm when I said everyone's a liar, how can I repay the Lord for all the good you have done for me? So I will take the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. The death of his faithful ones is valuable in the sight of God. Lord, I am indeed your servant. I am your servant, the son of your female servant. You have loosened my bonds, so I will offer you thanksgiving. I will call on your name. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people in the courts of the Lord's house at First Baptist. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. Amen.